Okay, good evening, everyone. So our topic for tonight will be the synagogues, the yeshivas of Jerusalem, the yeshivas of Jerusalem. Okay, so we're going to cover five yeshivot that exist and one that doesn't exist. Now, you might say, why is a history class going to cover a yeshiva that doesn't exist? Well, we'll figure it out along the way. But each yeshiva has a different story. So one yeshiva is going to be representative of the yeshuv hayashan, the old yeshuv, meaning the pre-Zionism Ashkenazic community of Jerusalem. Another will represent the Sephardic community, which also has its origins in pre-Zionism, although with the emergence of Zionism will not be hostile to it, but rather will be a willing participant in the nationalist project. The third yeshiva will be an avowedly national religious Zionistic yeshiva. The fourth will be a yeshiva that emerges in Eretz Yisrael from the ashes of the Holocaust. The fifth will be a yeshiva, which is an Ashkenazic yeshiva that came to Eretz Yisrael early in the game, but because of the vicissitudes of life in Eretz Yisrael, ended up somewhere where it didn't intend to be. And the last one is a yeshiva that never made it to Jerusalem. Now, if you know your Jewish history in the 20th century, you might already be able to tell me all six institutions without ha- me having named any of them. Um, anyone want to get, venture a guess? Yeshiva Shomala. No, so Yeshiva Shomala happens to not be one of them. Okay, so the answer is that the the Yeshiva Yashan Yeshiva will be Eitz Chaim, the sort of the, the, the grandfather of the Jerusalem Yeshiva. The Sephardic one will be Parat Yosef, which educated most of the Sephardic chief rabbis. The Zionist one will be Merkaz Harav. The post-Holocaust Haredi Yeshiva will be the Mir. The vicissitudes of life in Eretz Yisrael will be the Hebron Yeshiva that had to move from Hebron to Jerusalem. And the one that never made it, I'll wait till we get to the end to keep you in suspense. Okay, so Yeshiva Eitz Chaim began... My apologies if I have to keep, keep touching the phone because technology is a trouble tonight. So Yeshiva Eitz Chaim was started by Rabbi Shmuel Salant in 1841. Shmuel Salant was the Ashkenazic chief rabbi of Jerusalem for 70 years or thereabouts. He had a very long life and a long and illustrious career, having begun his position at a very, as a very young man. Well, quite early in his tenure, he wanted to have a yeshiva in Yerushalayim. It would be unseemly. Eli, I thought you were on the phone. Oh, okay. You got a double dose. So um, it would be unseemly for Jerusalem's Jewish community to be expanding and yet not to have a serious high-level yeshiva. But it didn't begin as a high-level yeshiva. It began as an elementary school. Uh, Where was it located? So it moved to the Churva in 1857. Now remember, the Churva was Charev. It was non-existent prior to that. There were efforts to rebuilding it, as we spoke about two weeks ago, throughout the 1830s and 1840s and into the 1850s. But once the, the building was roughly completed, the Yeshiva Eitz Chaim moved into those headquarters. And there they would remain for the next 51 years. However, in 1908, it was determined that uh, the Jerusalem old city was getting too crowded. People needed fresh air. And of course, we know from prior lectures that uh, Jewish communities were springing up outside the old city, starting from the 1860s, early 1860s with Mishkanot Shananim, okay, the Montefiore uh, development. But 
additional communities developed in the 1870s, Me'ashi Arim, and onward and outward. So in 1908, as Jaffa Road was expanding westward from Jerusalem and commercial infrastructure was developing along the Jaffa Road, it was decided to move the yeshiva to more spacious and pleasant quarters uh, that year. And a facility was built in what is today near the central bus terminal. In 1925, Rav Isser Zaman Meltzer came from Europe to become the Rosh Yeshiva. This was a major coup because he was a big rub at Rosh Yeshiva in Europe. And so now it was not just the members of the Yeshiva Hayashan who were uh, the headline figures of the Yeshiva, but rather the heavyweights of the intellectual elite of you know, ultra-Orthodox society in Eastern Europe were coming to Eretz Israel as academic heads. Who became the Mashkiach Ruchani of the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva? A tzaddik? No, no. That's the rabbi to the prisoners. Rabbi Arya Levine. Okay, so he became the Mashkiach Ruchani. This is Zaman Meltzer. And Rabbi Arya Levine were the, the, the heads of the yeshiva. And the yeshiva was the dominant institution uh, in sort of academic Torah life for the, the, the Jewish community of Jerusalem, the Ashkenazic Jewish community, for the next several decades. Other yeshivot would develop, Merkaz will develop, but in terms of old line yeshiva, Eitz Chaim was still the, the leading force. classified the type of religiosity was practiced by each one of these yeshivas. Okay, so bear in mind that religiosity and yeshiva study are not necessarily going to go hand in hand. That you can have apikorsim or closeted maskilim in the most fundamentalist of yeshivot. And the yeshivot of the pre-Holocaust era, whether in Lithuania or in Eretz Yisrael, did not feature students who dressed in the attire of today, or for that matter, with the closed-mindedness of today. The yeshiva student of the 1920s and 30s was basically a snazzy dresser who wore Western attire uh, and was intellectually open to other things. Now, they sometimes, that sometimes meant a, a formal university education, and sometimes it didn't, but there was a, an awareness of a wider world that may be absent in later generations. Okay, so... In 1953, so five years after the state was established, Rav Aaron Cutler became the Rosh Yeshiva of Eitz Chaim. Now you might ask, how did Rav Aaron Cutler serve as the Rosh Yeshiva of Eitz Chaim if he lived in Lakewood? Okay, so he was Zooming before Zoom was possible. No, the answer is that he was the son-in-law of Rishon Zalman. So when Rishon Zalman died, it wasn't absurd for Rav Aaron Cutler to become the Rosh Yeshiva, but he didn't move to Israel. I'm not even sure he visited Israel, uh, at least not very often. And he was uh, sort of the Rosh Yeshiva in absentia. And after he died in 1962, Rav Shach became the Rosh Yeshiva. And Rav Shach built that position into a, uh, being a, a powerhouse in the Jewish community of Eretz Yisrael, being the, the representative figure of non-Hasidic uh, you know, Lithuanian Haredic Jewry for political and other purposes. So a time had already been passed by, uh, by many of the other yeshivot that would become much larger, but it's Rosh Yeshiva retained his status as a dominant political force in, uh, in Israeli life. Grandfather Shimon Peres? No, 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 no. Someone else can do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, 
Let's now go to Yeshivat Parat Yosef. So Parat Yosef was originally established as Yeshivat Ohel Moed, and it opened in 1904. Now, if the name of the yeshiva is Yeshivat Ohel Moed, where would you suggest that it be located? Uh, near the Beis Hamikdash. Okay, so it was. It was in the old city, not far from the Temple Mount. There was a merger of two schools uh, in 1923, and the merger was called Yeshivat Porat Yosef. Okay, the cornerstone had been laid already in 1914 with one of the, the, the mother institutions of Yeshivat Yosef, and the money was coming from Yosef Shalom, a great name, Yosef Shalom. Uh, I went to school with him, No Shaver Academy, Joey Shalom. So, a ba- yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it was a Baghdadi Jew from Calcutta who gave the money to buy property overlooking the Temple Mount. So the goal was to build a yeshiva higher and a higher elevation than the Har Habayit. Okay, the Ottomans uh, were reluctant to allow the purchase of choice properties by Jews in the Jewish quarter overlooking the Temple Mount. But for the right price, it could be done. If you remember with the Tiferes Yisrael synagogue, there had to be an element of bribery involved and a- appealing to the, the, the good offices of the Austrian consulate. So sometimes you need to use you know, power politics and diplomacy in addition to a whole lot of money to get these properties. But in any event, the construction was delayed until after World War I because nothing was happening in terms of the Jewish life in Jerusalem in World War I. It was opened in 1923 and survived for 25 years until it was destroyed in 1948 when the Jewish quarter fell. But Porat Yosef uh, educated the leading figures of the Sephardic rabbinate. So of Ezra Atias was the long-time Rosh Yeshiva, and among his Tamidim were, you fill in the blank, anyone who served as chief rabbi of Israel from after marriage of Ben Sinu after he died in 1953, so every chief rabbi subsequent to him was a student of Porat Yosef, including Rabbi Yosef, uh, who was a student there in the 1930s and 40s. Um, it was rebuilt after 1948 in Geula, and then after 1967 was rebuilt again on its original site. So now there are two branches of Prat Yosef. There's the one in the old city and there's the one in Geula, and it still retains its status as the sort of flagship Sephardic yeshiva in Yerushalayim. Now let's talk about uh, the Hebron yeshiva. The Hebron yeshiva began as the Knesset Yisrael Yeshiva in Slavot. And the, the Chirush, the novelty of the Knesset Yisrael Yeshiva was that it emphasized, in addition to Talmudic studies, what, the study of what? Musr. The, the, the controversy over Musr was a major controversy in Eastern Europe in, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The question being whether or not it is necessary to have a separate course of study for ethical improvement beyond that which appears and is gained sort of by absorption, by osmosis from Talmud study. The fundamentalist point of view was you don't need to learn Musr. Why? Because any, anyone who studies Talmud properly will become a good person and will learn the, 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 the appropriate lessons, ethical lessons. The pro-Musrites would say, well, in theory that might be true, but in practice we see otherwise. So we need to... Uh, rejuvenate this, the, the, the spiritual uh, strength of the yeshiva student with a regular dose, a heavy dose, of ethical literature. Okay, so the Knesset Yisrael moved to Hebron from Slavodka in 1924 because the Polish government required mil- um, either military service by young people 
for secular studies for the B'nai Yeshiva. In other words, you couldn't get away with just learning Torah. You're either going to have to be drafted or have what amounted to a secular education. And not everyone is willing to choose those other, other two options. The only solution is run away. Run away where? Eretz Yisrael. However, however, Slabotka, the Knesset Yisrael Yeshiva, because it was a little bit off the, the beaten path, so to speak, with its Musser style, led by the altar from Slabotka, of Nussin Finkel. So he felt uncomfortable opening up his branch of Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. He preferred an out-of-the-way place in order that there not be interference from the established community in the ways he ran his school. Sometimes, very often, yeshivas don't want to be the, like the lion's den of Judaism. They, they want to be a little bit away from the action. I mean, Lakewood is a classic example. It began as a yeshiva in White Plains in my neck of the woods and eventually moved to, 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 to Lakewood because it was a resort town. It was away from New York City, from the Shtusim of New York City. Okay, well, Chevron was away from the religious bureaucracy and whatever Shtusim might have existed in Yerushalayim. It was a deliberate attempt to be removed from the, the seat of the action. Right, yeah. 1924. Uh, Rav, the, uh, okay, so the, the leadership of the yeshiva, Rav Nassim Spiefinkel, Rav Moshe Mordechai Epstein. And Rav Nassim Spiefinkel died in 1927. Rav Epstein was leading the yeshiva until his death a few years later. Uh, but in 1929, the massacre happens. And the yeshiva cannot continue in Hebron. But the name sticks. The Hebron yeshiva remains known as the Hebron yeshiva. And the Rosh yeshiva is the Rav Hebroni. Okay? Because of their uh, love and uh, nostalgia, so to speak, for the five years that they existed in Hebron before the massacre, the yeshiva was moved to Geula, and then in 1975 it was moved to Givat Mordechai, and it remains today one of the leading yeshivot, the Ashkenazic Haredi yeshivas in Yerushalayim, in all of Eretz Israel. It's an important institution. Okay, so. Those were some of the yeshivot that existed in Yerushalayim before the war. What about, yeah, question? That's a good question. So when it came to Sephardic yeshivas, it was local funding and uh, wealthy Sephardic patrons from, from Damascus, from Cairo, from Baghdad, from India. Uh, usually it was, in the Sephardic world, just a small, small number of really wealthy people who valued getting their name on the building of the yeshiva. When it comes to the Ashkenazim, that was less so. There were some heavy hitters, including Fischl, who Harry Fischl will talk about soon, but it was more uh, a widespread collection of small-time donations. Not from local Jews, because Yerushalmi Jews were poor. Uh, but mostly from Europe and the United States. The United States becomes a major funder of, of, of pre-state institutions in Yerushalayim. Okay, so the Mir has had its story told many times, and it's not really for us to learn about now, and of course in the history of Jerusalem, but suffice it to say that it was an illustrious institution in Europe that was saved by Sugihara and by a few others. They go to first Japan and then to Shanghai, and when it's time to leave Shanghai, the question is, where do you go? And the answer is, some will go to Brooklyn. Uh, they went to, first to, uh, to East New York, to New Lots, and then they moved to Avenue R in Flatbush. Um, but that was only one branch of the yeshiva. 
The other branch of the yeshiva made it to Eretz Yisrael in 1947 and begins uh, building up an institution along the seam line between the Jewish and Arab portions of the city. Between 1949 and 1967, the, the backyard of the Mir Yeshiva was the border of the state of Israel with Jordan. So it was uh, a place I, I, a colleague of mine, friendly with him, much older than I am, learned in the Mir in the early 1960s. And he said every now and then, and you'd hear a gunfire go off. Uh, someone was shooting across the border. Usually the Jordanian shooting at the Jews, not the other way around. So Jerusalem was sort of a dusty border town before the Six-Day War, with the Mir being on the border Mamash. Okay, but it, it, it grew and it grew and it grew until eventually becoming the largest yeshiva in the world with uh, seven, 8,000 students. Um, now, let's go to the two yeshivas I want to spend our, most of our time on tonight. First, Merkaz Arav, and then the yeshiva that never made it. Okay, so what's the story with Merkaz Arav? Rav Cook, who came to Eretz Yisrael in 1904 to become the Yafa Rav, the chief rabbi of Jaffa, becomes the rabbi of Yerushalayim in 1919, and then chief rabbi of Israel, uh, of Palestine, in an institution sponsored by Herbert Samuel as the high commissioner. So the British and the, the Jewish community collaborate together to establish the office of the chief rabbinate in 1921. Rav Cook was, began thinking about a central yeshiva shortly after arriving in Jaffa, in 1904. It would be a yeshiva with a diversified curriculum and should reflect the grandeur of Eretz Israel. He spent the war years, World War One. So diversified, I'm gonna explain, could mean one of two things, either within Judaic studies diversified or even beyond Judaic studies diversified, one being even more radical than the other. We'll see what he meant. So he spent World War One in Switzerland and then in London. And he founded the Degel Yerushalayim movement, the flag of Jerusalem, which was an alternative to political Zionism, Tzionut. The central universal yeshiva would be the crown jewel of the movement. It would be needed to counter the emergence of the secular Hebrew university. Now we spoke about Hebrew university a couple of weeks back and how Rav Kook was at the dedication and gave a speech that turned out to be controversial because his, his words were twisted by Satmer uh, and uh, to this day remains a sore point between various camps. But the idea of a yeshiva, central universal yeshiva for Jews all over the world are gonna send their Talmudim to learn here, that would be his pride and joy. Well, Bernard Revel took over Reitz in 1915 and he hired Dr. Moshe Seidel as a librarian and professor of Bible. Seidel was Rob Cook's disciple. And Seidel invited Rob Cook to come to America in November of 1918. Rob Cook responded apologetically that he couldn't travel until the war ended, although the war ended actually a week later. It was November 4th, 1918. Little did he know that November 11th, the war would be over. But in any event, Rob Cook asked Revel to establish a fund for the Central Universal Yeshiva. Of course. The New York Jews, the rich New York Jews, are going to pay for a big Gansi Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. Now, he noted that, uh, that Revel had ideas which were similar to Degel Yerushalayim, that Revel's you know, pre Lamian Torah Umada style could have fit well with Rav Cook's ideas. And then Bernard Leventhal 
who was one of the leaders of Agudas Rabbanim, the rabbi in Philadelphia, the father of Israel Leventhal, met Rav Cook in London in 1919. Rav Cook was supposed to come to America then, but he announced that he had to go to, back to Israel first. He had been away from Israel far too long. He couldn't go to America just yet. He will in 1924 to raise a lot of money and he'll spend about a half a year in America. Now, Rav Cook thought that, that, that Revel's wealthy brothers-in-law, the Travis family of Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the oil business, would give a lot of money to the Central University Yeshiva. But what happened to the Travis family that upended up, up those plans? So the oil business went boom and bust. Okay, so not only was there no money for the Central University Yeshiva for Rob Cook, there was no money for REITs. And Revel had to go back to Oklahoma and leave New York for a while and only come back to New York to run REITs on a full-time basis in 1923, at which time he had a different idea, not a collaborating with Jerusalem, but establishing Yeshiva College, Yeshiva College. Okay, my alma mater. One second. Okay, so uh, now establishing Yeshiva College is going to be a very financially intensive uh, exercise. Well, Herbert Samuel established the chief rabbi in 1921, and, and Rav Cook was elected as the chief rabbi. But you have to pay the chief rabbi, you have to let him live in dignity, you have to give him some perks. And what is a perk that a rabbi usually wants? Not so much travel. Establish a koilu for me, a yeshiva for me. I want some talmidim. I want to be not just a rabbi, but I want to be a rebbe. Okay, so Harry Fischel, who was the major funder for yeshiva college, paid for a suitable house for the chief rabbi and attached a shul and a base medrash. The earliest disciples of Rav Cook in that little base medrash attached to his house was known as the Merkaz. The, the circle or the central focus. It was supposed to be a temporary name before the establishment of a central universal yeshiva with a grandiose name, probably named after some wealthy donor. But as it turned out, no fancy name ever developed. The Merkaz became just Merkaz Harav, and the name stuck. But that's into the future. Okay, well, Rav Cook invited the Nazir, Rav David Kohn, to design a curriculum for his new yeshiva. Now, the Nazir wasn't really a Nazir. What was he? He was a quasi-Nazir. He didn't drink wine. He didn't eat meat. He was a vegan. Um, and he didn't cut his hair. It grew long. The Nazir was the father of whom? Rav Shar Yashiv Kohn of Haifa, who passed away. And he was the father-in-law of Rav Goru. But he was the main disciple of Rav Cook. Rav David Kohn was a very, very special man. One of the great Jews of the 20th century. Well, Rav David Kohn put forth a proposal that included Jewish history, philosophy, ethics, Hebrew, and Bible, in addition to the staples of Talmud and Halacha. Well, that's all very nice, but that's a, a dramatic departure from what had been the usual style of yeshivot. So you can imagine if Rav Cook was a controversial figure for his Zionism, um, this is also going to be a reason for the traditionalists, or the ones who are sort of stuck in a rut, and are not interested in change and progress to say, ah, oh, he's too progressive. He's a half a reform rabbi. Okay, well, uh, this curriculum sounds a whole lot, a, a lot like what? What? Whose curriculum? Yeshiva College, to be honest. Okay, in Yeshiva College, you have obligatory Bible courses. And you take history. I never took philosophy, though. Uh, somehow I got away with not taking philosophy. But oh, you have the Hebrew requirement, Bible. Huh? <laughs> They don't, and that's going to be a challenge. They really don't have teachers. We'll see as, as we discuss this further. So all this remained theoretical 
because of lack of funding and also lack of teachers and lack of students at the moment. It was clear that Rav Cook would need to travel to America to raise money for his central universal yeshiva of Jerusalem. Okay. Well, he arrived in New York on March 18, 1924, with the dream of establishing a yeshiva for all of world Jewry. He made it clear that that was his intention. It may be located in Jerusalem, but it's going to serve all of world Jewry. So therefore, you American Jews shouldn't think that I'm just snoring money for myself. You people will benefit from the product of this yeshiva. Okay, now it would have a broader curriculum and students would be able to get secular training outside the yeshiva. So notice, not in the yeshiva, but outside the yeshiva, it will be possible to get secular learning. So secular learning is not trait. It is not a, pri a primary aspect of one's education, but it may be an ancillary thing that people want to have and we're not going to object. Like when the Rebbe's in Brooklyn, say so you can go to Brooklyn College at night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a little bit, yeah. Okay, so uh, Dr. Benjamin Menashe Levin, who was the author of Otsar Gaonim and was a cook disciple, prepared a prospectus. So the Nazir had prepared a, 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 a theoretical curriculum. Now we have a more uh, tachlis prospectus. It will be a six-year course of study for boys ages 16 to 22. So 16 to 22 is relatively young. You come out as a rabbi at the age of 22. It'll cover eight topics. Halacha and Talmud, Agadah, Tanakh, Jewish history, land of Israel studies, okay? Chochmat Yisrael, which they defined as philosophy and ethics, literary writing style and rhetoric. Now, the fact that they include literary writing style means that this is going to be a yeshiva where we anticipate some machabre svarim are going to emerge, where some poskim who are going to write shaila suchuvis are going to emerge, and they need to learn how to write rabbinical literature. No, so rhetoric is the is what we in, in, in YU speak would call homiletics, the Rabbi Lukstein class that I took, my favorite class in all of YU, um, and that's public speaking. On the premise that there will be congregational rabbis, communal rabbis who have to address an audience, and they shouldn't sound like a shmendrick. They should sound presentable, so they have to learn rhetoric. Okay, this is all very nice. Well, the goal was to train rabbinical leaders in Jerusalem who would return to their home countries around the world. In other words, you don't make Aliyah. You don't go to Yeshiva in Israel to make Aliyah to Israel. You go to Israel for six years to then come back to Mexico or New Zealand or Australia, wherever you came from, and you'll be the rabbi of your old, your old hometown. Okay, fine. The Torah Campaign Fund was launched at the Astor Hotel on April 2nd, 1924 at a fancy dinner. And Rav Cook lectured at Reitz and praised Revel. So Rav Cook lectured at, at, at Reitz, very important point. Now he spoke, Rav Cook spoke to the Agudas Rabbanim convention and said that the, the Central Universal Yeshiva and a worldwide union of rabbis would pave the way to reestablish the Sanhedrin. Okay, so you have to have a yeshiva to train the next generation of rabbis, but the current generation should have a worldwide union and the ones who are educated in this yeshiva should have an alumni association, which is part of this worldwide union of rabbis, of real rabbis, not phony baloney rabbis. We don't, you know, the reformers. No, no, no. This is not Agudas Yisrael. This is Agudas Rabbanim. Agudas Rabbanim are the old world rabbis in America, but the old world rabbis in America were Zionists for the most part. Almost all of them were. Um, for whatever reason, if you haven't studied American Jewish history, and I tell you this little nugget of information, 
it comes as a bit of a surprise. Aren't the, aren't the old line Orthodox rabbis against Zionism? And the answer is, yeah, in, in Eastern Europe, many of them were. And in Eretz Yisrael, many of them were sort of weird, but yes. But in America, almost all the so-called Haredi rabbis who came off the boat were Zionists. Now, why is that? There's a certain logic to it. America is the tray from Medina. If you're willing to go to the tray from Medina, you're already a little bit more open-minded and thinking about the, the, um, the, the material fate of the Jewish people. You didn't stay back in the, in the Alter Heim, where only, uh, the only kosher place in the world, you recognize that Jews have to escape oppression, go to freedom, and retain their religion in a land of freedom. So a person willing to do that likely will also be a Zionist because you recognize that we need Eretz Yisrael as a back, you know, as a backstop for uh, a safe haven for Jews in an hour of oppression. Is there any blowback from competitive yeshivas in the formation of this? Uh, probably yes, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm insufficiently familiar with the polit- the internal politics of the, what was going on in the late twenties to answer that question appropriately. All I can say is there was a desire for collaboration with REITs that sort of fizzled out, which we're getting to right now. So um, what happened next was the, uh, a resolution was adopted by the Igurus of the need to build a central universal yeshiva and a seat for the chief rabbinate, which ultimately becomes Heichal Shlomo. So Rav Cook visited 10 major U.S. cities and met President Coolidge and supposedly left a very favorable impression in the eyes of President Coolidge. Um, Rav Cook left on November 12, 1924, having raised $320,000. That's a lot of money. Ah, it's a few million. It's a, it's a lot of money. Minimal, minimal. So, while in America, Rav Cook saw the toll of assimilation on Ashkenazic Jews. Remember, the ni- by the 1920s, Ashkenazic Jews in America uh, really were uh, you know, not doing very well. This was a time of low rates of affiliation among the children of people who went to the Lower East Side. So if you're no longer in the area of first settlement, now in the area of second and third settlement, Brooklyn, the Bronx, or other cities in the functional equivalent, very few people were going to shul. Almost nobody was going to yeshiva. In New York, what yeshivas were there? There was Chaim Berlin, there was RJJ, uh, there was uh, Tarvadas had just started. There were a few places, but most people were getting limited to no Jewish education. Rav Cook was very upset about that. And so he recognized the need for the Jewish community of Eretz Yisrael to produce leaders for the Chutz Laaretz. Okay. And that those leaders would have to be innovative and could not be stuck in a rut of the old ways. Before his visit to the U.S., Rav Cook had 20 students. By June of 1925, he had 52 students at Merkaz Arab, and dozens more were expected to come from Europe. Rav Cook purchased 20 dunams of land in the Kriyat Moshe section of West Jerusalem for $20,000. He asked the American rabbis to raise another quarter million dollars for construction. Oh, rabbis, you just get me another quarter mil, as though it were a snap of a finger. It was the roaring 20s, and people were optimistic about raising money and economic prospects. Rav Cook wanted to be a competitor to Hebrew University, and by 1927, Merkaz had 75 students. It was the first yeshiva with no gullus attitude. Hebrew was the language of instruction. Yiddish was the language of instruction at Eitz Chaim. All right. And certainly in the post-war years, for me and other places, Yiddish was the main language of instruction for a long while. Eventually, it reverted over to Hebrew in many places. But 
This was Hebrew from the very beginning. Modern methods of study, scholarship, and research. Now, when I say modern methods of research, I'll show you a book. Folks at home, pardon me, I'm going to go off camera for a minute. So, Kedusha Haritha, produced by Mosada Rabko. Okay? They have the Ritva, they have the Rashba, they have the Rabana, all the Rishonim, they have Mosada Rabko editions. Well, what do you have on the page here? Footnotes, okay. In the Altahem, there were Nishkin footnotes, all right. They, they didn't exist. So, although this is not the academic study of Judaism, this is not Wissenschaft scholarship, the likes of which would exist in a university, still it believes in a scholarly apparatus, looking at the manuscripts, knowing variant texts. So, there is uh, something new, innovative about the Rav Cook methods of study. Yeah, yeah. Along the lines of what Steinsaltz eventually produced. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right, right. The Yeah. argument. Yeah. And that's what and and that and that's what Steinsaltz and others later on. Okay, so uh, in 1928, Yeshiva College was established and academic degrees are being given. So Yeshiva College is, is advancing its ball and Merkaz Arav is advancing its ball, but sort of a, a, on parallel tracks 7,000 miles apart. Revel wrote a letter in 1927 to Rav Cook, which was hand-delivered by the Ramaz and Harry Fischel. He wanted a reciprocal relationship between Ritz and Merkaz Arav including the student exchanges and professor exchanges. Each side will learn the needs of the other. Okay, nice relationship between the two schools. When Rav, Cook's, uh, when Rav Cook received Rav Let uh, Revel's letter, he was still thinking about a broad vision for his central yeshiva with widely educated graduates emerging. Rav Cook wrote to Rav Herzog, who was eventually his successor, who was at that time the chief rabbi in Dublin, in Ireland, about ideas of assembling a scholarly, a scholarly faculty for the ancillary subjects. Remember, who's going to teach Bible? Who's going to teach Hebrew? Who's going to teach Land of Israel studies? Philosophy, history. They don't, they're traith. They're not religious. Okay? Maybe. So, where are you going to get Erlich Orthodox Jews, Yirei Shamayim, to teach these other subjects? That's the question. So, he turned to Rav Herzog, who was a very educated man, okay, a PhD from a, a, a in the sciences, where am I going to get these people from? So the the merger ended up not happening because there was a realization that we just don't have the money for this. We don't have the faculty here or there. It just isn't going to work out. However, there's another reason why Revel was floating ideas of collaboration with Mekazara. It was an alternative to collaboration with which institution? JTS, right. So it, it, the money people in New York did not understand why it was necessary to have two traditional rabbinical seminaries in the same city. After all, they're both not reform. You know, we, Chazif uh, and Jews, we know there has to be a traditional school. Why don't we do two schools? Let JTS and, and Reeds merge. But Revel wanted no part of that. So one of the ways of 
shifting the focus was to say, oh, we're look, we have our eyes on Eretz Yisrael to, to join with Merkaz. Fine. Now, Rav Cook um, had a problem. He only had two teachers in his school, himself and his son. He couldn't afford to hire anybody else. The economy turned bad in 1927. More people were leaving Israel than were coming in. This is a, 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 after the fourth Aliyah, before the fifth Aliyah, there was a downturn in the, in, in the population of Eretz Israel among Jews. So it wasn't a good time financially or otherwise. In 1929, Harry Fischel offered Judah Magnus, the, the president of Hebrew U, $100,000 to build Rav Cook's yeshiva on Mount Scopus as part of the university. That's a lot of money. However, does Rav Cook want to be part of the university? It's questionable. But the response was, and, I, and the, the argument in favor of it was, it would broaden the horizon of the yeshiva student and spiritually enrich the university student. Everybody would benefit. The, the, the yeshiva bacher would see open eyes, a wider world, and the university student would see a little Yiddish guy. Okay? So Magnus responded in 1931 um, that Saul Lieberman would head the, the Talmud department but that Rav Cook could not be a faculty member, but just on the board of governors. Because why? He's not a university professor. He's a rabbi, but not an academic. That's a little bit of a patch and pun. More than a little bit of a patch and pun. That's like a slap, a real slap in the face. Okay. Um, so that was going to fizzle out. But remember, Harry Fischel is a rich guy. And Harry Fischel wants his name on some institution in Eretz Israel. So he tries to get one in New York. It doesn't work out at first. So he decides, I'm going to open one in Jerusalem with Rav Cook's brother, Dove, Rav Dove Cook. And it became known as the Harry Fischel Institute. It lasted for a little while. Lieberman was, Sullivan was in charge of it until he went to JTS. Okay, now Revel had his own financial problems. In 1931, Reitz almost went out of business because of the Depression and he had no money. By 1935, the money situation had slightly improved and Revel returned to the idea of a Reitz Jerusalem campus. However, Rav Chaim Oizer in Vilna heard about this and told Rav Cook shortly before Rav Cook died, don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. Don't let Reitz establish a Jerusalem branch. And so it didn't until the Gris Kolo was opened a half a century later. Okay, now what was going on here? Fischl had gone on to put Saul Lieberman in charge of the Fischl Institute and Lieberman wanted to change the style of learning away from traditional yeshiva learning to a more academic style of learning, like the, the likes of which you would have at the seminary later on. And that wasn't kosher in the eyes of the traditionalists in Eastern Europe. At the same time, by the way, in 1935, which leading rabbi was very briefly in Israel? Rav Soloveitchik. On his only trip ever to Eretz Israel, Rav Soloveitchik, for all of his big Zionism, he only went to, to Palestine once, pre-state era, when he interviewed for the job of chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, which he didn't get, and then he went home and never came back. Well, while he was there, he lectured at the Harry Fischel Institute, and it seems that Fischel wanted Rabbi Soloveitchik to stay in Eretz Yisrael long-term and be the head of that institute. Didn't work out that way. He went back to America, went to Boston, then went, back, went down to New York and become the successor to his father and spends 40 years at Yeshiva University. So things could have worked out a little bit differently, you would have had a major difference here in New York because of what's going on in Jerusalem. Now, uh, the last yeshiva I want to talk about is the one that didn't make it. When did it become more clear? 
Rav Tzvi Yehuda? His son. After, after the Six-Day War, yeah. Yeah, yeah, after the Six-Day War. It transformed itself into something much more nationalistic and territorial maximalism and the like. Okay, uh, yeah. Yes. So there were many boys who, who didn't come back because they got killed. In the Hebron massacre, many American and Canadian citizens died uh, because they were students at, at Slavodka and they went to students to Hebron. Uh, but so what, what about in Eitz Chaim? In Eitz Chaim, there were Americans later on in the 60s, but not in the 20s and, th- or, or 20s and 30s. In Port Yosef, I highly doubt anybody American was there. And, and in the Mir, there were Americans in the Mir in the 1930s in Eastern Europe. Okay, Rabbi Victor Miller, and he wasn't the only, there, were, there were some who went from America, uh, American passports to Eastern Europe, and because of their American passports, they were able to get out when, things were, when the going was rough. Um, and then there were Americans in the Mir in the 1950s. Not that many, but there were some. Okay. Probably very, very few. I would tend to that you could count them on one hand, I would imagine. Um, I, I can't say with certainty, but you don't, in, in, the, in the history of 20th century Judaism, we don't find Americans who studied there who came back to America who were contributing to American Jewish Orthodox life. It was not a thing. And it could have been such a big choice or the she was here now. Right, of course. Yeah. Didn't you didn't have to go to Israel. You didn't have to go. It became cool to go to Israel at a later time once travel was more convenient. After the Six Day War, it became socially acceptable to come and go. But in the early days of statehood, it was not a common thing. Okay. Now, the yeshiva that didn't make it to Jerusalem was the Hildesheimer Seminary of Berlin. What's the story with the Hildesheimer Seminary? So it was established in 1873 by Ezra Hildesheimer as the German Orthodox Rabbinical Seminary, committed to halacha, Torah study, but also Wissenschaftes Judentum, academic study of Judaism from an Orthodox vantage point, meaning to defend against the apicorsus of unfettered Wissenschaft, the likes of which was happening down the block at the Hochschule, the Reform Geiger Seminary, okay? So German Orthodoxy have educated rabbis who are educated secularly and religiously and are committed to following the halacha for an audience that is, you know, teetering on the brink of observance versus non-observance. Well, uh, in 1933, the seminary was struggling mightily for several reasons. One, financially, it was, you know, not doing well, that the, the German economy had not been good for a while. Secondly, Nazism had been a real threat. People are now leaving. The German Jewish community is collapsing by the day. I mean, it'll be more precipitous by 1938 and Kristallnacht, but even early 1933, there's an awareness that we're kind of doomed. And this yeshiva and these, these Jewish institutions of Germany are not long for this earth. And lastly, the faculty was aging and dying. And one of them was moving back to Eretz Israel. So what do you do? The idea was Dr. Mayer uh, uh, Hildesheimer, the son of Rabbi Israel, the son of the founder, wanted to move the school to Eretz Israel and move it specifically to Yerushalayim. However, he got pushback from Abraham Isaac in Vilna, who adamantly opposed the idea of moving a seminary, a Western Orthodox seminary, 
to Eretz Yisrael. Why? Because the seminary was a school for training rabbi doctors. It was not a real yeshiva with high-level learning lishma. Now we get to the uh, the rift between German Orthodoxy and Agudas Yisrael, Polish-Lithuanian Orthodoxy. The two different camps collaborated politically to establish Agudas Yisrael in 1912 and 1923 with the Big Gedola. Which groups in particular were um, at the forefront of of the of Aguda, so the Polish Hasidim and the separatist Orthodox in Germany, not the Gemeinde Orthodoxy, although they eventually joined as well, but the Hersheyan separatist, the Breuer type Orthodox. So this collaboration was uneven. One side represented the money and the political influence, and the other side represented religion. So to speak, uh, you know, real hardcore traditionalism, and the Easterners did not really respect the Westerners, and certainly didn't respect the Westerners' rabbis, whom they thought were just rabbi doctors, and not real rabbonim and uh, Rashi yeshiva and chachamim. So the real learning was in the East, the nonsense learning was in the West, or the low caliber learning was in the West. So to, uh, the idea of moving the Western yeshiva to Eretz Yisrael was anathema. Well, the Lithuanians considered the seminary to be kosher bidiyavad only, and only in Germany, but not in a land of intense Judaism like the Holy Land. So who was stuck in the middle? Who represented Lithuanian Jew- Judaism in the German Berlin seminary? The Swedish, from Michiel Yaakov Weinberg. He was an Easterner, a Talmud of the old world yeshivas, a brilliant Talmud Chacham, but who had gone to Berlin and gotten into university education and become the rector after Rabbi David Tzvi Hoffman died. And a few years after that, he became the head of the, the Berlin Seminary. So he was this link between the old world and the German world. And he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, Hildesheimer wants to move the school to safety, physical safety. And the, 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 in the old world, the, the, big, the chief rabbis of the world, they say, no, you can't do it. So there were several halachic disputes that precipitate, well, that predated this 1931 controversy, which further um, frayed the relationship between East and West. For example, um, in 1933, there was a question about the kashras of stunned meat. Now, why was that a question that came up? Because the Germans insisted that you can't do kosher slaughter without first stunning the meat of the animal. And they did that, not out of humanitarian consideration for the animal, but because they knew that the halacha or the rabbis had said it was not kosher, and they wanted to mess over the Jewish community and force them to eat trait. So the question is, is there a a halachic loophole to allow for, at least for the avad, ex post facto, the kashras of stunned meat? And Rav Weinberg said, yes, there is. And he wrote a tshuva. And Rav Chaim Ozer ruled against him. So the uh, relationship was a little, a little rough. Then Mayor Hildesheimer went to, to Warsaw and Vilna, actually only to Warsaw, in September of 33, on the question of boycotting Germany. 
What was the question, the, the question about Jews around the world boycotting Germany? Okay, good. So the, the Germans boycotted the Jews April 1st, 1933. And the question is, should worldwide Jewry boycott Germany as a protest against the bad treatment of the Jews? And the, uh, the sort of the hardliners would say, yeah, boycott, boycott, Madison Square Garden rally, 20,000 people in New York, boycott. Stephen Wise. But the other point of view was, well, if we do that, it'll be even worse for the Jews of Germany because the Nazis will further take it out on them. Now, the counter argument to that is the Nazis will do whatever they're going to do no matter what. They don't need our boycott to further pummel the Jews of Germany. But the Jews in Germany, for the most part, were against the boycott because they're the ones who are most likely to suffer. Hildesheimer went to Warsaw to ask the Polish Jewish community not to boycott Germany. And in the newspapers, in the religious newspapers, they said, Dr. Hildesheimer comes as an agent of Hitler. That's Motsi Shemra of the highest order. But it, it gives him a Shemra. So now, whatever he wants to do is seen as trade. He wants to move the seminary to Jerusalem. That's a further reason to say it's trade. Well, what happened? Rav Chaim Oyser gave a Das Torah. Das Torah, it's us to move the seminary. Us, forbidden. But Hildesheimer went to, to Palestine anyway on a fact-finding mission. Is it possible to move the yeshiva? Uh, now, there were 90 students at that time and another 10 faculty. It's 100 lives. So aside from moving an institution, it's the, the saving the lives of people, you know? Well, he went, and what did he find there? He found that Tel Aviv was receptive and Yerushalayim was not. Tel Aviv is more open, Yerushalayim is not as open. There were letters in the Haredi press objecting to his arrival and saying that if they move the seminary, it'll be a mu'uvat l'yuchalit kon. Okay, what's a mu'uvat l'yuchalit kon? A crooked thing that cannot be fixed. Meaning this will be an error, it will take root and cannot be rectified. So don't do it. Or... Not more than five minutes ago, you said people's lives were at stake. So did the philosophy get in the way of practical survival? Uh, maybe, but we're going to see. So that's one thing that was said. The other thing, it's a foreign plant in the garden of the Lord. You know, it's a, it's a, a, a voter, not a voter zero, but a, a foreign plant in the Gan Hashem. I don't think Germany wasn't the Germany itself is not the issue. And the last thing is it's a rabbi factory, a rabbi factory, not a real yeshiva. Okay, so what ends up happening? Dr. Hildesheimer died shortly thereafter at the age of 70. Many of the students um, immigrated to Palestine individually over the next few years, including, most importantly, one of my heroes and the greatest Judaic studies professor of the 20th century, Yaakov Katz, Jacob Katz. Okay, Jacob Katz was a student of, of the Hildesheimer Seminary, was a, a, was a Musmach there, he got his degree from Berlin, and then in 1934, he makes Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael, not as a professor, but as a rabbi, as a German Orthodox rabbi. Now really, he was Hungarian, but he was ordained to Germany. So, his career path is very interesting. He didn't become a professor at Hebrew U until the 1950s, when he was already an older guy. But uh, in any event, individuals made Aliyah, but the school could not go as a group. Well, what about the Swedish himself? Bichil Yaakov Weinberger. Weinberg, he, he was the, the head of the yeshiva, and the yeshiva didn't move. So what, what happened to him? The answer is, 
he kept working and the yeshiva functioned until Kristallnacht, November 9th, 1938. Then it shut down, just like the Breslau Seminary shut down and the Hochschule shut down. Everything shut down after Kristallnacht, okay? And he suffered terribly during the war in various camps, but he survived the war. And he lived until 1966. But the last 20 years of his life, where did he live? Switzerland. Why didn't he go to Eretz Yisrael? The answer is because, in his own words, if I had gone to Eretz Yisrael, I'd just be another Deutscher doctor, a German doctor, not a real rabbi. So he had been so, not ashamed, but like belittled by the experience of his institution being uh, dismissed by Chaim Moiser, by the whole Eastern European cabal, and, and the Jews of Yerushalayim. You know, we don't want you here. You're not welcome here. That even after the war, after the establishment of the state, he didn't go. He stayed in the Talmud in Switzerland, in Montreux, and, uh, and died in 1966, and he was buried in Eretz Israel. So in death, he could get to Israel, to, to Yerushalayim, but not in life. So we see then that there never was a rabbinical seminary, a central rabbinical seminary. Rav Cook's vision never really came to pass. The Merkaz Arab became a very prominent yeshiva, a great yeshiva, a tremendous yeshiva, but was not the likes of which he envisioned when he first was floating the idea, and the tradition, the, the, the Western European-style seminary, which had been around since the 1850s in some form or another in, in Berlin, in Breslau, in New York, in Budapest, in Vienna, that type of seminary never existed in Yerushalayim. However, however, I shouldn't say never, because what ended up happening, the non-Orthodox denominations, the American seminaries like HUC, JTS, would eventually open up campuses in Jerusalem, sometimes on very choice property, I might add, right next to the King David Hotel. Okay, so they have seminaries in Jerusalem, but the notion of an Orthodox seminary it never came to pass. Yeah. A diaspora concept. It, it, you're right. It, it, it really is only a diaspora concept. So the Ivy Leagues of the Hezbi Yeshivas, first of all, are not in Jerusalem, and they're established later on. Shalavim, Kambiyavna, and the like. So those have their own story, which we could, uh, if this were a course on religious Zionism, we'd have to spend a tremendous amount of time uh, on that. Now, the, my, my last point for tonight, I'll just say the following. Rav Kook did not want the Torah in Derech Eretz of Rav Hirsch. He didn't even want the Hildesheimer-style seminary uh, of Berlin. But he seemed to be open to something modern, the likes of which didn't come to pass in the Metazarab. And the question is, why did it not come to pass? And the answer could be because even the, uh, the Rav Kook had open-minded disciples like Levin and Seidel, Lieberman, the Nazir. The yeshiva itself was in the hands not other things. So they did not want the alien culture of the diaspora with secular disciplines. That wasn't for them. They wanted Torah, Torah Eretz Yisrael. As for the others, Levin did Osaragaonim, Lieberman went to New York and went to the head of JTS. Okay, the Nazir did his own spiritualism. Everybody went their own way, but the school kind of just followed a path of traditional Torah Eretz Yisrael, not a uh, 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 universal seminary. Okay, we'll stop here. In two weeks, we'll be returning and we'll do 
Ben Yehuda Street and Machana Yehuda Market. That's May 16th. Our last session will be May 30th and it will be the seven gates of the old city. The secrets of the seven gates. All right, see you in two weeks.